Revelation chapter 21, and we want to read together beginning in verse 9 and reading down through verse 27. And we're looking particularly at the New Jerusalem. That's the subject of these verses. You remember that in the first part of chapter 21, John told us what he saw, and what he saw was a new heaven and a new earth. And then he saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And we talked about the fact that uh, there are decisions to make. One of those decisions, as we seek to understand what John is saying, is, is he talking about a literal new heavens and new earth? Um, Or is this just a remake? Is it just a renewal of the original? And so we argued last week that I think it's right that we should say it's a new heaven and a new earth. All the, the import of the passage seems to be that this really is a brand new creation, that what God did first in creating this earth and its heaven, he will do again at the last day and give his people a new home. And then one of the questions that we ask is, is the new Jerusalem Speaking of the people of God, is that a figurative description of God's people or is it a description of a literal city? And so what we talked about is that it's both. Um, Reading through chapter 21, it's clear to see that John both uses the description of a new Jerusalem to talk about God's people. Uh, I mean, the very fact that he says that this new Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband means that he foresees this as an emblem, a symbol of the people of God. And we also know that that goes back to the argument of of how John saw Babylon the Great. Remember that he said Babylon the Great was at one point a city, a global city, a city that took in the entirety of the world, but it was also at another point a woman, a woman who was um, adulterous and who, uh, who enticed the nations with her sinful allurements. And so in contrast to that, the new Jerusalem is a bride adorned for her husband. It is the people of God, but it's also a city. And we see that particularly tonight as we see how John describes the measurement and the makeup of that new city where God will dwell with his people. And so we want to think first about the worth of the new Jerusalem and then about the wall of the new Jerusalem, and then uh, we would see, I think, at the end, the witness of this new Jerusalem. And so first, let's read together verses 9 through 11 in Revelation chapter 21. John writes, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit, to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So John begins by telling us about the worth of this new city. In chapter 21, in verse 2, John saw the, uh, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now in chapter 21, in verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last plagues, those were in chapter 16, 
One of those angels bids John to come and see in even greater detail the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So here again, John is using that language to describe the new Jerusalem. He says that the angel is going to take him and show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So it is at one turn a real city and at another an emblem of the people of God. They both dwell there and they are the dwelling John is carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain. That's not a throwaway phrase. John has told us at many points about the spirit's activity and work in his life. Remember in chapter 1 in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard this trumpet-like voice that he later realized was the voice of God himself, the voice of the Lord Jesus In chapter 4, in verse 2, John was in the Spirit when he was brought up higher and transported into the throne room of God, into the heavenly realms, and he beheld God Almighty, the one who sat upon the throne. And in chapter 17, in verse 3, John was led in the Spirit and carried away into a wilderness where he was shown Babylon the Great, that whoring global metropolis that enticed the unbelievers of earth in service to the beast who had empowered her. So John, to say in chapter 21 that he was carried away in the spirit, that he was taken to a great high mountain in the spirit, it's not a throwaway phrase. This is not just filler. It's a reminder to us that John's visionary experience has not come in his own power, but in the power of God himself. The angel showed John the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. That phrase, the holy city, if you go looking for it in the scriptures, it only appears ten times. And almost always, except in the Revelation and in one other place, it refers to the original Jerusalem, the ancient city, the city here on this earth. And Nehemiah talked about it twice in Nehemiah chapter 11, both verses 1 and 18, when he was recording the repopulation of that city. Isaiah prophesied about that place when he said that the nation of Israel compared itself to the holy city when in fact they were not living up to that standard in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 2. And Matthew says that the holy city was one of the places where the devil took Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5 to tempt him. Remember that he took him to the holy city and brought him up to a great pinnacle and enticed him to bow down to him so that he might had the kingdoms of earth. And it was also in the holy city where those who were raised from the dead after the resurrection of Christ appeared in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 53. All of those uses of that phrase refer to the present Jerusalem, the historic city. But there's one place outside of the Revelation that seems to point to a new Jerusalem, a future Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that will be at the end of time In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 1, the prophet is talking about the restoration of God's people. And he called on the holy city to put on beautiful garments for her time of grief and groaning was coming to an end as God would cause her to no longer be the habitation of the uncircumcised and unclean. I think what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 52 and verse 1 is finally coming to fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22. This new Jerusalem is a fulfillment of that expectation Isaiah had. This new Jerusalem is at the same time a way of speaking about the people of God 
as well as about the place where the people of God dwell in God's presence and power where God provides for and keeps his people. The city that John saw was filled with the glory of God, he says, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. That the new Jerusalem is filled with the glory of God is a description of his manifest presence. God dwells in this city. He lives here. He will fill this place. This city is shiny and splendid because it is, the, it is illuminated by the presence of God himself. The word glory here is the word doxa. We get from that word doxology. You know the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You remember that. But the word doxology is not just the title of a hymn. It's also a description of, a, of an aspect of our worship. It's the offering up of praise to God. It's the study of God and the praise of God and the worship of God. This word doxa is equivalent to the Hebrew word Cabo, which means to be heavy. We've talked about this before. That in the Old Testament, the idea of glory means something that is weighty or heavy or something that, is, that, that carries value and worth. The word doxa carries that same meaning. It's one of the ways that it can be translated is the exercising of personal opinion. Your personal opinion carries weight to you, doesn't it? It matters. You, you place value in what you believe. And so this word doxa, it means something that's weighty or valuable or glorious or heavy. It's referring to the weight of God, to the value of God, to the worth of God. This city is worthy because this city is filled with the worthy one. John doesn't see God's person but he does see God's presence. And in seeing the presence of God, he sees radiating splendor. But then John begins to tell us about the wall of that new city. And so look there in verse 12 to 21. Let's read these together. John says that the new Jerusalem in verse 12 had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. When you think about heaven... Isn't that what you think of? 
Most of us, when we consider where we will spend eternity with God, our hearts and minds are drawn to this description, and rightly so. The worth of the new Jerusalem is God himself, whose glory fills his dwelling place. The presence of God cannot be contained by, but it does rest in a particular place. John describes that place by relating the measure and makeup of the wall of the new Jerusalem. Grant Osborne reminds us that in the ancient world, walls were essential for protecting a city in a time of siege. But that's not the purpose here, for there's no longer any enemy to attack God or his people. John says that the city had a great high wall with 12 gates. He first describes the gates. There were 12 of them, three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And on each of the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And at the gates were 12 angels. Robert Mounts reminds us that in the background here is the vision of Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 30 to 34. But he also shows a distinction Ezekiel envisions 12 gates in the New Jerusalem that are named with the 12 tribes of Israel, but in Ezekiel's vision, the gates are a means of going out to the lands appropriated for the different tribes of Israel. So the tribe of Gideon goes through his gate into his land, and the tribe of Gad through his gate into his land, and and the tribe of Naphtali through his gate in his land. But in the vision that John has, the gates are not for departing, but for entering. And the gates are not marked out by particular individual tribes, but by the collective. They are marked by the whole. It's not that there is a gate for Gad and a gate for Benjamin and a gate for Joseph. It is that there are all of the gates for all of the tribes. They are distinguished by the whole. It's true also when John begins to think about the foundations, as we'll see. Where the gates are inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, John saw written on the twelve foundations of the city, the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I've been trying to get my mind around these foundations, and of course, you and I, when we think about a foundation, we think about something that is poured for the most part. Uh, But of course, what they have in view are large, massive stones that would have been the foundation, the the piece upon which the city is built. And these foundation stones would have to be gargantuan, larger than anything our minds can imagine because of the size of this city, which John will tell us more about in a moment. As with the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, Marked upon the gates, the inscriptions on the foundations of the 12 names of the 12 apostles are collective, not individual. The language seems to point to that. It's not as though there's a Reuben gate and a Benjamin gate, a Peter foundation and a James foundation, but it's that there are gates that are marked by the 12 tribes and foundations marked by the 12 apostles. We shouldn't be concerned here of, is there a foundation that has Judas's name on it and not Matthias or what about Paul since he got a special calling as an apostle by Jesus himself that's not the point the point is to say here that the foundation of this place 
is the apostolic witness. It's the witness of those who belonged to Christ and were called by Christ and were commissioned by Christ to hold forth his word. Just like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that our faith is built upon and the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, so here John is reminding us that the foundation of that ancient city built not by human hands, four square, eternal in the heavens, is the witness of those who were commissioned by Christ. The 12. The 12 apostles are the foundation of that city. And the 12 tribes of Israel are the gates, reminding us of the way by which we come into God's eternal dwelling place. We are not separate. There's a reminder in this chapter that we are not separate from God's covenant people, Israel. Instead, what we are reminded of here is what Paul has written about in Romans and Galatians, and that is the reality that Israel was always and ever a people of faith. That those who had rejected God by faith, those who didn't believe in God by faith, were not credited as righteous. They weren't counted as belonging to him, regardless of their ethnicity. Remember that faith preceded the covenant. Remember that Abraham, it was his faith that was credited to him, accounted to him as righteousness. And so it is for me, and so it is for you. We are one with the real Israel. The church of the Lord Jesus of every nation and tribe and tongue is one with the covenant people of God in that we all come to God by faith, either looking forward to or backward to the finished work of Christ upon the cross. John writes that the one who spoke with him had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. In chapter 11, in verse 1, John was given a measuring rod, you might remember, and he was told to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. And there we said that was a way of saying that John was told to measure God's people, to make sure they were protected, that they were kept by God in the face of the attack that would come by the beast from the abyss. But here John's not concerned with protection, but instead with grandeur and awe. The measurements that are going to be given here are meant to astound and to amaze John and his hearers and readers at the magnitude of the new Jerusalem. Listen to what John says. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. And John says that it lies four square, which at first we might think is merely speaking about its length and its width, but then John qualifies that, and he says that its length and width and height are equal. So what John has in view here is a cube. It's a reminder to us, and it certainly would have been to John and his readers, of the dwelling place of God in the temple in the ancient Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies was a cube, and so here we are reminded of that in the dwelling place of God with his people forever. John says that the measure of the one side of this is 12,000 stadia. 
Grant Osborne explains that there are a lot of measurements when we try to go back and see what was a stadia there. It's not one standard length. And so when we look at the average, what we're talking about here is a length of 1,500 miles. Now, in case you were wondering, and I bet you were, how big is that? How far is that? Well, here's a few things to consider. 1,500 miles is about the distance from Selma to Keystone, South Dakota. And you say, well, what's Keystone, South Dakota? That's Mount Rushmore. From here to Mount Rushmore, 1,500 miles. It's also about the length from here to Bangor, Maine. So you imagine the, a, a square sitting that large from Selma to Keystone, South Dakota to Bangor, Maine. This is an immense territory. It's 2,250,000 square miles of land, and it ascends 1,500 miles into the air. So I bet you were wondering how high is 1,500 miles. Well, just for comparison, Mount Everest is only five and a half miles above sea level. And the average flight is only six to eight miles above sea level. And just for kicks, John Glenn, when he orbited around the earth, was only 162 miles above sea level. The total volume of this city, 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. It is magnificent on a scale we can hardly fathom. You know, it's said that Louis XIV, when he wanted to demonstrate his power, built Versailles. Um, now, if you're from Kentucky, that's Versailles, but you're not, so there you go. But Versailles was built to be the palace of the Sun King. Some of you may have been there. If you haven't, just go online and remind yourself of what that place looks like. It is sparkling and splendid in every way. So much so was this the, uh, the sort of preeminent palace in Europe that uh, when Buckingham House was converted into Buckingham Palace, the home of the British monarch, they sought to do something on the scale of Versailles, but the coffers fell incredibly short. They couldn't possibly pay for something that immense. But as grand and glorious and wondrous as Versailles is, the greatest of any palace on this earth, it is a shack by comparison to the dwelling place that God will make for his people. The measurement of the wall, John tells us, is 144 cubit, cubits by human measurement. And then he tells you it's the same by an angel's measurement. They're the same. It's a description probably of the wall's thickness. And that equates to about 216 feet. But here is a problem because, of course, John is writing in an era before steel has been invented. And, of course, you know that before steel was invented, in order to get any height on a building, you had to build out the base. And so, uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the difficulties in construction before the advent of steel uh, is that you had to have a foundation that could stand the weight of those lower walls that were so thick uh, and then got thinner as you rose for a building that is, or a city that's 1,500 miles high, 216 feet thick walls at the base is hardly sufficient in order to cause this to stand. And so one of the things that we should just question here is, 
is John using figurative language? And that doesn't mean that he's not writing about a real city. It doesn't mean that he's trying to tell us uh, something that isn't so. But it does remind us here that perhaps 144 cubits is not meant uh, to be read literally, but instead perhaps is symbolic. And of course, 144 is, uh, is a grand number in figurative language because it's the square of 12. And of course, we know 12 in, in their understanding was a number of wholeness and completion. And so uh, what maybe John is trying to say is there's perfection here. There's completeness here. There's wholeness here. This is a city that doesn't lack anything. Nonetheless, I still think it's a real city. And I think what John is trying to do is convey to us the immensity of this place. John has relied, relayed the measurements of the wall, and now he relays the makeup of it. He says that this wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. We've seen jasper referred to twice in the Revelation. First, in chapter 4, in verse 3, it was used to describe the appearance of God Almighty, the one who sat on the throne And then it was used in chapter 21 and verse 11 there when John was describing the radiance of God's glory that fills this new Jerusalem. John here is using it again to describe the walls of this city. He wants us to know that these walls are dazzling and brilliant and clear beyond compare. They are so clear and so translucent that that they perfectly reflect the transcendent glory of God. They're the perfect substance in order to reflect God's brilliance. If we want to see God shining and see God splendid, this is a way to do it. A lot of the commentators say that in talking about the wall's composition, first of jasper and then of gold, that perhaps one of the things that John means because of the way that the word is used in the Greek is that John means that the wall is is gold but is inlaid with jasper. That could be what he means. But it's splendid and wondrous. Listen to John tell you about the foundations of the wall of that city. He says the foundations of the wall of that city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the third or the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. There are a number of things that could be going on here. I want to tell you about them just so you are informed, and then I'll tell you what I really think is going on here. One of the possibilities here is that what John is doing in listing out these 12 gemstones, these precious stones, uh, one of the things John could be doing is reversing uh, the, the stones that are associated with the sign of the zodiac. In, in the ancient Egyptian world, and in, in the Arabic world, uh, they had the zodiac signs and they equated the zodiac symbols with, um, with precious stones. And so John here, it's possible that he's taken a listing of those stones and he's reversed them in order to repudiate, to refute uh, the power of the zodiac and of the pagan world and to say this is what is transcendent and this is what is true. That's one possibility of of what's going on here. Uh, Maybe a better argument, a more more substantial argument, 
is that what John has done here is he is relying upon uh, the description from Exodus chapter 28 of the stones that were upon the breastplate of the high priest. You will recognize, if you remember that passage, if you don't, just go back and look at it, Exodus chapter 28. You remember there that that God gives instruction about how the high priest's garments are to be made. And one of the things that he's supposed to wear is a breastplate that has 12 precious stones upon it. And then beneath those or inside of those, uh, inside of that breastplate is where the the, the Urim and Thummim were kept. And that's, uh, remember, that's a way that the high priest is able to bring decisions in time when, uh, when they have concern and they don't have a command. Uh, then this is a way for the high priest to understand how they should go forward and what decision they should make. And so uh, perhaps what John is doing is he's relying upon that and he's trying to say that where where the, the ancient uh, high priest represented the dwelling place of God and represented the tabernacle of God, uh, in his breastplate and particularly represented the Ark of the Covenant even in his breastplate. Now these precious stones representing the foundations of the new Jerusalem are reminding us that the, the one time temporary place where God dwelled with his people is now a permanent dwelling place of God with his people. The difficulty with that, number one, is that John doesn't tell us that. Um, and I, I've told you before that when we're trying to interpret, the first thing we want to look at is what does John clearly tell us? Do we have do we have a reason from the writer himself to make these allusions? And the second would be if we don't have a clear reason from John, if he doesn't just expressly tell us this is what something means, then we have to ask, is this a direct quotation or is it a clear reference? Well, of course, John doesn't make any quotations in the Revelation. Instead, he just alludes to things. And so could he be alluding uh, back to the, the, the stones upon the high priest's breastplate? Possibly. Uh, but of course, only eight of the stones match with the list that's given in Exodus 28. Four of them are different. It's possible, it's possible that our understanding of the Hebrew, uh, which is difficult and complicated, uh, it's possible that it could be the stones that John lists in Revelation 21 are the Greek equivalents to those Hebrew uh, terms and to those stones that were on the high priest's breastplate. But I'm just not convinced. I'm not convinced there's enough reason for us to think that. So it could be. But I, I just like the more simple, I think often the more simple answer is the right answer. And the more simple answer here is just to allow the weight of these stones as the foundations of that city to stand as a point of magnificence and brilliance and to point us to the wonder of this city. John has told us about how grand this is, a city 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles tall. And now John tells you that this city has, as its 12 foundations, each inscribed with the 12 apostles, precious jewels that are the foundations of this place. It's given to us, I'm convinced, to show us the brilliance and the wonder and the magnificence of this place where God will dwell with his people. John then writes that the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Now, I know that um, Mae West said diamonds are a girl's best friend. And I know that Kay Jeweler says every kiss begins with Kay. But in the ancient world, the diamond was not the chief 
of all the gemstones or of all the jewels or all the precious things the pearl was. That's why Jesus said, told that story about the pearl of great price. A pearl was more valuable and more luxurious than anything else in the ancient world. Now I want you to think about this. The depth of these walls, how thick are they? 216 feet at least. Can you imagine a pearl that large? 216 feet in diameter. Let me tell you the best that the world's come up with so far. In 2006, a Filipino man was fishing and he discovered a giant clam. And inside this clam, he found a pearl that measured, anybody want to guess? 26 inches long and 12 inches across. He didn't tell anybody about it. He said, I'm going to keep this to myself. It's a good luck charm. So he took it home. He put it under his bed, thought it would bring him good luck. But 10 years later, his house burned down, so it couldn't have been that lucky. But the pearl was not burned up. And so he had it valued. It weighed 75 pounds. And at the time, the valuation was $100 million. Now, I did a little calculation. One pearl for one gate is 99.5% larger than the largest pearl the world has ever conceived of. That would cost $9,950,000,000. We've got $120 billion worth of pearls just so we can walk through into that city where God dwells with his people. You think that's wondrous, and it is. But here's the more wonderful thing. John says that those pearls were the gates and that those gates were inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. God, by giving the foundations as gemstones and the gates as pearls, is telling us how much he values his people. For him to put his name, his people's name, on pearls and gemstones is to give them, say that they have incredible value and worth. John has told us about how we get into this city, and then he tells us about how we're going to walk around on it. He says that the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We're reminded here of the floors of the holy place and the holy of holies in King Solomon's temple. For in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 30, we're told that the floors were overlaid with gold. It's a reminder of the temple of Solomon in the description of the street of the New Jerusalem. And it sets up the absence of places and things that John is expecting to see in the holy city. The first of which is the temple itself. So look down at verse 22. John says there, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John writes that he saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple historically was the place where God dwelled with his people. It was a reminder that there was a separation between God and his people, a separation only spanned by an intermediary, the high priest, and then only fully once a year. It was also a reminder that his people did not live where God lived. God filled the temple with his presence, but that was only his earthly habitation. He did not cease to abide in heaven. His people were confined to know his presence only in a temporary, temporal way. They lacked the transcendent experience of God's continually dwelling with them. But that was then. And this, John tells us, is now. This is a completely new era. The final and full expression of God's purpose, creative and redemptive work. And it is marked by God's dwelling with his people. No more temple. God is the temple now. When God mediates his own covenant, there is no need of a mediator and no need of a place of mediation. That is why the temple is God and the Lamb. But it's not just the temple that is missing. John also is looking for the light, but he notices an absence of those celestial luminaries, the sun and the moon. He writes that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the background here, of course, is Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 60, verses 19 to 20. Isaiah writes that the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. It's fitting, isn't it? It's fitting that God should be the light of that city. It's fitting that God should be the eternal lamp of that place where he dwells with his people. Because God's people had dwelled in darkness. But the prophet Isaiah said to a people who walked in darkness on them has the light shone. The prophecy of the Lord Jesus' coming was an illumination of darkness. It was a scattering of night. John said in the opening to his gospel that he, the light of the world, came into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. What we experience, what Isaiah foretold, and what John declared, and what will one day be full reality is the trumping of all the darkness of earth by the glorious light of God himself. The point, of course, is that heaven and earth have become one in the movement of God to dwell with his people in the new Jerusalem. That city has no need of lamp or light, for him, God himself is the light of that city. John tells us that by the light of the city will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and there will be no night there. Now that's caused some trouble. Some people read this without a careful eye and they think that somehow we still have at this point in the story of the Revelation two classes of people, those who are inside the city, the people of God, and those who are outside of the city, the unbelievers. 
And so some have questioned, is this really the new Jerusalem, the final expression of God's dwelling place with his people? Or is this perhaps uh, simply a Jerusalem that exists in the millennial kingdom? Or, or perhaps is this, um, is this some other expression? Are we to see that somehow not all those who have opposed God have been vanquished yet? I think that is a failure to carefully read John. Because John is a creature of his time, inspired by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, but no less a creature of his time. And so John has consistently, throughout this entire book, woven together three different types of literature. He's given us uh, prophecy, he's given us letters, and he's given us this apocalyptic language. And because of that, at every point throughout this, we've had to concede that John, fully inspired by the Spirit, led along by the Spirit, writing in the power of the Spirit, is also writing with the limitations of human language to convey what it is that he's seeing that is more than any other human being has ever seen in the history of the world. And so he's using the best words that he has in the best way that he can to communicate these transcendent truths. So when John says that the nations, by the light of that city, will bring their glory into it, he isn't telling us that somehow there is still an opposition to God. He's not offering up that there are still these radicals from certain places on the earth that have not yet been subsumed into God's domain and realm. He's not saying that the casting into outer darkness at the great white throne judgment was somehow incomplete. And he's also not taking us back to the millennial reign and describing something that isn't permanent. He's just using a figurative term. What John wants you to know when he comes to verse 24, what he wants you to know is that there is no longer any opposition to God. Because all of the powers and all of the forces and all of the authorities, all the glory of the nations has been brought into God's presence. Every point of pride that every citizen of every realm has ever had is one day going to be taken off the charts of kings and countries and counted to the credit of God himself. So I don't know about you, but we heard a lot of fireworks last night. I'm so thankful for a sleeping baby who just didn't even know it was going on. Because Mary and I sure did. We love our nation. We're thankful for the freedoms we enjoy. I'm grateful that we have these times when we get to celebrate and be grateful together, when we all sort of pause in the middle of everything else just to say, isn't this a wonderful thing to live in a place that's free? But I'm here to tell you that when God settles the score at the end of time, he gets all the fireworks. He gets all the attaboys. He gets all the adulation and praise. All the nations will take all their glory and bring it into God because it's God and God alone who is worthy of his glory covering covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And what John is trying to say when he says that by the light of that city, the nations will bring their glory into it, he is saying there's no more opposition. 
everybody has gotten in line at this point. And then John says in verse 26, well, in verse 25, he says that the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And they will bring it into it the glory and honor of the nations. That's John's way of saying uh, this is a secure place. It's a safe place. You don't ever have to wonder. You don't have to lock your doors in heaven. Some of you remember those days when you didn't have to lock your doors. When you came and went uh, from your house to the neighbor's house to, to the preacher's house. I hope you didn't do that to your preacher. But but you remember those days, some of you, when you had that kind of freedom, when you didn't have to worry or wonder where we're going to be robbed or intruded upon. You didn't have to keep your gun at your bedside table just so you could kill somebody in the middle of the night. I hope you haven't had to do that either. But I know that's the times in which we live. And I'm so glad that one day we will dwell in a place that is secure. God says we can leave the door open. No wonder, no worry. There aren't any enemies anymore in that place. And then he concludes, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh my goodness. Well, you never know. You never know. Uh, I don't know how they came up with that, Miss Francis. I wonder if they took. Oh, this is that's pure speculation. We'll think about that. That's that's speculation, but but you never know. I love old songs and I love new songs. Not all old songs were. Weighty and lots of new songs are. But every now and then I dwell upon some words that we don't really sing anymore. Maybe never have. Maybe, maybe these are words that you've never heard before. But I thought they were fitting as we close our thoughts tonight. Charles Wesley, the brother of John, founders of the Methodist movement. John would preach and Charles would sing. Charles wrote wonderful hymns. In fact, he wrote a hymn, wrote thousands, but he wrote a hymn for every season in the year of the church. And John wrote an, or Charles, excuse me, Charles wrote an Advent hymn because Advent, originally on the church's calendar, was not a reflection upon Jesus' first coming, but an anticipation of his final coming. And Charles wrote these words. Lo, he comes in clouds descending once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, God appears on earth to reign. And every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing shall their true Messiah see. And now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear. And all his saints by man rejected now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, see the day of God appear. And answer thine own bride and spirit. Hasten, Lord, the general doom. The new heaven and earth inherit. 
Take thy pining exiles home. All creation travails and groans. And yes, amen. Let all adore thee. High on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Hallelujah. Come, Lord, come. Father, we pray on this day. But pray like pining exiles, Charles Wesley wrote. We want to be home, Lord. We want to be with you forever. We want to dwell in your kingdom. And we want all the kingdoms of this world to have come to their end. We long for wholeness and healing, for freedom, for real fruitfulness. For permanent day, for never ending rest, for safety and security like no other, we want to be home. Sometimes, Lord, we are confused and by the stuff of this world, and sometimes, Lord, we're comfortable thinking it'd be okay to stay here a while. But then the stuff of life happens and we're reminded there is a real home and we are going there. A place that God makes for his people. And when we walk by faith, we don't have to wonder, will we miss the finish line? Because just when we seem not to be able to run any longer, You're going to run to us. You will make your dwelling with your people. And so God, I pray that these thoughts about heaven and home, about the certainty of eternal life, the end of days, the final judgment, and the splendor of that city that is both the people of God and the place where God's people dwell, I pray these things would comfort our hearts. Give us a cause for hope. And may they, God, spur us to mission. May we work while the day is still day. For we know that night is coming when no man will work. Even so, we pray with all the saints of all the ages. Maranatha, our Lord, come. Amen.